you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast. As always, I'm joined by my friend, Rabbi Lippman. Hello, my friend. How is the family? Thank God. Family is doing well. Uh, definitely a, a, a difficult time in Israel, but difficult in a way which I don't want to sound too harsh. Uh, oh, yeah, we have rockets flying into our cities near Gaza. Last night, I was up till 2 o'clock in the morning uh, monitoring the uh, red alerts that were coming in with over uh, close to 100 rockets last night and with today 150 different rockets or other things uh, that were fired at Israel. So it's a tense time and you brace yourself for God forbid the worst. Thank God uh, between the Iron Dome, God's protection, people being disciplined and doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, There have been some light injuries and certainly property damage. Uh, but thank God, no loss of life, and we certainly hope uh, that continues. And I have my Red Alert app, so I'm getting all of those alerts here in Texas and praying for the people nearby when the alerts go off. And yet, life can goes on, and you take your kids to school, and you go to work, and you trust God, and it's a strange dichotomy that only exists there in the in the Holy Land, where you have danger, and yet you trust God. Yeah, my wife today took one of our children to the beach, uh, which uh, in, a, in a beach area that has certainly been within the range of the Hamas rockets. There was a uh, red alert in the city of Beersheva, which is 40 kilometers from Gaza, which is pretty far, and a, a huge metropolis. And within hours after that attack, a soccer match with Hapol Beersheva against a team from Cyprus, stadium full of people. That's the way we are. Uh, Hamas can keep, I wrote a piece for Times of Israel this week that listeners can go look up called Hamas uh, Fires, Hamas Shoots, Israel Builds. We're building, we're growing, the communities around Gaza are growing, and obviously we have to pay them back for the attacks and hit Hamas targets, but life continues, and with God's help, uh, it'll continue that way. Well, let's turn to the Torah portion for the week. We do trust God, and we believe that He's going to continue to protect His people, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we pray for the safety of all of our friends there. And one of the best ways to trust God is to know His Word and study His Word. And so we'll jump into this week's Torah portion, the Parashah in Hebrew, as we tell you all the time that Jews have been gathered on the Shabbat table for over 3,000 years, studying the scriptures together. And this week's portion comes from Deuteronomy, chapters 11 through 16. Re'eh, re'eh in Hebrew means to see. And uh, we know that one of the many names of the Lord and descriptions of the Lord in the scriptures is El Roy, the God who sees. And so we believe that God sees who we are and where we are. And the idea is here, as we come and back to the book of Deuteronomy that we've studied for several portions, Moses is getting to see into the land, not just physically, but also spiritually. He's looking ahead to a future, and he's preparing the group of people of 
the nation of Israel to enter the land when he will not. So why do we have the word see? It's the first word of verse 26. What is the lesson here? Moses uh, is clearly very nervous about how the people are going to act after he passes away. You see this throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And here he's about to present to them the rewards and punishments uh, which they're going to uh, experience. A blessing that will come to them if they fulfill God's will, curses, punishment if they don't. And he's telling them not just information. He says, A, see it, feel it, internalize it, reflect on it. Don't let it just be some piece of information. You know, you're a pastor. You get in front of your your church. I'm sure you don't want the people just to be sitting there and just listening to your words. Your goal is that it should penetrate them. And while they're on the way home, they'll be thinking about it. And at dinner time with their family, they'll be talking about it. That's the re'e. He's telling them each an individual person. It's in singular. Re'e, each person on your own. Uh, think about it, reflect on it, and make sure that it changes your life. The verse that begins this portion is Deuteronomy eleven twenty six. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. Rabbi, we say it in our church all the time, blessing follows obedience. And the corollary to that is discipline follows disobedience. And it is difficult because, as we know, we don't see this as openly as maybe we want to see it. We don't see immediate reward that comes when we do a good thing, and we don't see immediate punishment when we do something wrong. Uh, many of the commentaries actually talk about the fact that it's not necessarily uh, some incredible wow type of reward, but it's the satisfaction of doing something right, and doing one thing right leads to doing something else right, whereas the opposite happens. You do something wrong and you feel it, and it also leads to doing other things that are wrong. The blessing and the curse are inherent to the actions that we do, but we also have full belief that in its time, in its place, in God's way, there will be actual reward and actual punishment for the things that we do. And what you say there brings up an interesting question. If God would punish me immediately, then I would probably not do that action again. We have to take our little kids, and if they try to touch the fire or the stove or something, we have to slap their hand and teach them immediately that that's dangerous and don't do that or don't run in the street. Yet God's mercy and his patience makes him wait a little longer to bring judgment into my life. So I then look around and say, well, nothing happened to me. I must be okay. And so it's God's patience and mercy that we use as an excuse to sin the second time. That's for sure. Uh, there's no doubt that we as human beings have the ability to convince ourselves uh, that there is no consequence to our actions. And that's, again, that's where the re'e comes in, where Moses says, don't just hear what I'm saying, look into it, think about it, reflect it on it, make sure that you realize it's a reality. The last verse of chapter 11 says, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. And so here's a question we've talked about before many times that Moses himself does not get to enter the land. His job is to prepare the people to enter the land. And so I would assume there's a bit of sadness, maybe even jealousy on Moses's part. I'm getting you guys ready to experience a blessing that I don't get to experience. It's hard to say that 
that Moses is jealous. It's, it's difficult that he hasn't you know, fully come to terms with. But you do see him telling the people all over and over again, using the terminology of when you went to the land, when you went to the land. And I think uh, he's, he's sharing a very powerful uh, idea. Uh, with the people, which is uh, reminding them of this incredible blessing which they're going to have, and now they have to take responsibility for it. The first verse of chapter 12, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. So I think it's an interesting grammar question. As long as you live on the earth, does that modify living in the land, or does that modify observing the statutes? Which one are they supposed to do as long as there are Jews on the earth? They're supposed to realize that the connection to the land, the land of Israel, is conditional. And this is something which we have to be so cautious about. Uh, over and over again, you're going to see that terminology of on the land which God gives to you. And he's talking about the land of Israel. He's talking about the condition of being spiritual and being obedient, that word that, that you use so pointedly, uh, in the land of Israel. Over and over again, we're reminded of that. And sadly, we talked about it a few weeks ago, we suffered the consequences and were exiled from the land because of our disobedience, exactly the way God, uh, Moses here, speaks about it in, in, the, in the weekly portion. Sometimes obedience means doing something. Sometimes obedience means not doing something sinful. Verse 2 says, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall disp dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. Cut down the engraved images of their gods. You shall obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. So Moses is telling them, don't play games. Don't play with sin. Don't trust yourself to resist the temptation. Totally remove all the sinfulness, all the idolatry, and that way you won't be tempted to pursue the false gods of the Canaanites who live there. There was such a fear of the influence of the people who were living in the land and their idolatry. And it's difficult for us in our time to relate to that idolatry, that, that pull, which they clearly had. Uh, but we can learn two things from this. Number one, every generation has its idolatry. Uh, you see, they see a family sitting around a table, and instead of talking to each other and discussing their day, everyone's on their phones. That's an idolatry. People that are being pulled away from what's meaningful in life uh, and focusing on uh, technology and, and other things, that's idolatry. And that's part one. Part two is look what they're commanded to do with it. They were told, get rid of it, destroy it, don't have any semblance of it. I'm not saying people should get rid of their phones or technology, but you certainly have to fight really hard to make sure that things that distract us from what's important don't take hold of our lives. And these commands over here are telling us in any generation in which you live, there's idolatry. That could be the pursuit of money, the pursuit of pleasures, and whatever it is, you have to use the same model that Moses is talking about over here, which is to do whatever you can to get rid of it and destroy it, because otherwise you're susceptible to follow it. Verses 2 through 4 say what you're not to do. 
verse 5 and 6 and 7, they tell you what to do. Verse 5, you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. And then you're to bring your burnt offerings and your tithes, and then you're to eat before the Lord. In verse 7, so God has chosen specifically to place his name in the land of Israel, in the holy city of Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Ir Elohim, the city of God. And you're not to do these certain things, but you are to do these things, and that is worship God and bring your offerings to the Lord as a way to show your dependence upon him. And uh, you know, this is obviously talking about Jerusalem, and it's talking about uh, the temple. But it's fascinating how God himself doesn't say it's in Jerusalem, it's the temple. He says there's going to be a designated place. He wants the people to understand not where that place is. That's not the point right now. But the idea of, going back to that word again, obedience. There are going to be rules. There are going to be regulations. These are, this is what enables you to be spiritual, and you have to follow that. Don't do offerings in other places. Don't do your own thing, but follow the way God commands you. And if you do that, what is the result? Verse 7, you rejoice in all your undertakings. That God's gift to us when we worship him, when we obey him, is not loss or burden or he robbed us from something. The blessing of God, the reward of our obedience is joy. There's no greater joy. There's no greater happiness than a, knowing that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and B, a connection to God. And that's exactly what God is saying. God is saying, you follow this, you do it the way I tell you, that will lead to happiness. You know, we live in a world where everybody's looking for the key to happiness and what is it. And sometimes people think it's being able to do whatever you want to do, go live and enjoy. I don't know. I see that world and I see people that have to resort to narcotics and there are suicides and you don't see people who are very happy. But people who are spiritual, people who are devoted to a faith, people who are disciplined and following a set of rules, but knowing that it's all in the name of God to bring them close to God, that's where you find real happiness. That's exactly what God says over here. And some of these commandments are very specific, and we're going to get into the topic of kosher, clean and unclean, in a moment. But Rabbi, verse 15, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God. The unclean and the clean, that means the people, may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer. Only do not eat the blood. You're to pour it out on the ground like water. You're not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain. Verse 18, you shall eat them before your God, the Lord your God in the place in which the Lord will choose. So what are the lessons here on how to be obedient and when and where to eat and what and what not to eat? Well, the commentaries on these verses talk about this and they say, uh, God is not telling you that you must distance yourself from the physical world. He's not saying uh, go fast and go uh, uh, make sure you don't enjoy. He wants you to enjoy. Uh, there's even a teaching in the Talmud of a great rabbi who said uh, that when he passes away from the world, he wants to know that he enjoyed, uh, you know, the terminology is, you know, with all of his fingers, with all of his hands. He enjoyed everything that God blessed him with. But he did it within the rules and the frameworks of God. And even with eating, 
you cannot eat anything, everything you want, whenever, wherever. Uh, there are rules associated with it, and it makes you think, and it makes you remember God. And also, on some level, uh, we know that it also leads to holiness. Certainly, the blood. Uh, the commentaries explain that the blood is is something which instills a person with uh, cruelty. And you are what you eat, and therefore that's why we make sure that we salt the animal uh, and the blood is removed before a person eats from it to be conscious of these things. And that's where the rules, the dietary rules of kashrut that we have come into play. Kashrut is the Hebrew way to say kosher, which we'll talk about in a moment. But if we go to chapter 12, verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts you off, cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you and you do not inquire about their gods saying how do these nations serve their gods that i may do likewise then verse 31 do not behave this way toward the lord your god for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, small g. They even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So what the Lord here says, first of all, is God's going to deliver these people. He's going to remove them. Don't be curious about their pagan idolatry. And remember also that what they're doing is detestable or, or hated by God. So don't long for the things if you're a godly person, that the ungodly people do. And, and what's amazing is, it's not as if what God is, what Moses is describing here is something which sounds to us like it's attractive. You're talking about people who are putting their children through fire, killing their children, who knows what's going on over there, and yet God and Moses are saying, human beings are tempted. You'll be around them, it will be public uh, you know, peer pressure, uh, you'll see something in it. Never assume that you are immune to the influences of things that are happening around you and follow God's word and follow the, the, the warnings of Moses to make sure that you don't fall prey to it. You just said never think you're immune, and I'd like to bring us a Bible study example of that. We just read in Deuteronomy 12, 31, do not behave this way to the, toward the Lord your God. Every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. We're talking about child sacrifice. And often for the Canaanites that was done to the false god called Molech. And yet if we move all the way to 1 Kings chapter 11 and we study about the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, chapter 11 of 1 Kings verse 7 Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So not only are average people like you and I susceptible to sin, even King Solomon himself was. And that's something which, you know, when King Solomon speaks... And you see him talk about uh, the challenges, and you see him talk about what's important in life, and you see that he himself, the wisest of all men, as you just said, Pastor, uh, we, the Bible doesn't hide the failures of our ancestors and the founders of the religion and the greats and our forefathers. It's filled with their failings so that we can learn from them. And that's one of the beauties of the Bible is that it presents it to us in that way. Even here, as we're reading this, 
we just have to keep reminding ourselves that Moses was punished for the things that he did wrong. It wasn't idolatry. It wasn't going after uh, foreign uh, uh, influences. But everyone is susceptible. We're human beings. That's why we're on this earth is to, A, try to overcome challenges, and B, if we fail, to then learn from it and try to make things better. As we continue this week's Torah portion, covering Deuteronomy chapters 11 through 16, now we get into chapter 13, and Moses gives very clear warnings about being seduced into idolatry. And what's interesting, or maybe is eye-opening, is the way that idolatry and sorcery and witchcraft and all of those things can be introduced to people. In chapter 13, verse 1, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. So that person might tempt you with this. But it goes further than that. Verse 6, if your brother or your mother's son or your son or your daughter or the wife you love or your friend entices you secretly, saying, let us go serve other gods, you shall not listen or yield to them. And then what do you do? You're to stone them to death. Because he has sought, verse 10, to seduce you from the Lord your God. So one is the danger of being pulled away into pagan idolatry. And two, even those close to us can pull us away from the Lord. And that's a little scary. And and that's something which has happened throughout our history as well. Where we've had, even amongst our people, uh, people who fell prey to whatever it was and then tried to lead entire peoples. Uh, along with them. Uh, And this is why we have to be so careful about these foreign influences and so connected to tradition. As we talk about the temptation for idol worship, one commentary rabbi says that for, I'll even read the quote, for the most part, Israel failed to apply the commands of this chapter. This sinfulness resulted in the northern kingdom and later the southern kingdom being exiled. Do you agree with that? That's exactly, exactly uh, what happens. Uh, when we talk about the, the ten lost tribes, uh, that's not just a, a happenstance that there are ten tribes that were lost. If you study uh, in the book of Kings and you study exactly what happened, they very, very quickly, uh, in the northern part of Israel, uh, they, they, they left from God, they began uh, pagan worship, And that was it. The moment that became, especially from a leadership level, uh, they were doomed. And exactly what God speaks about over here in terms of what will happen is what happened. As we get into chapter 14, it's a reminder of something we've discussed on a previous podcast, the Jewish people being the chosen people. We believe that God is the creator of all people. He desires to be the spiritual father of all those who will worship him. But there is a uniqueness about the chosen people in chapter 14, verse 2. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Rabbi, I know you're going to reply like you usually do, that that is a gift and a privilege, but it's also a responsibility to represent God to the world. And that's the terminology, the exact word that you use is what I always told my students, is what I tell my children. When we talk about chosen people, that can have a connotation of superiority, and you can see it as being elitist. 
and that's not the terminology. I even wrote a column that's going to be in uh, Jerusalem Post this week uh, about this topic, that it's not uh, a superiority, but it's a responsibility. It's a responsibility that comes with some privileges, uh, but it's a responsibility. And this is something which is so critical uh, for us to understand, to rise to the occasion and really uh, recognize uh, the responsibility that we have. As we continue through Deuteronomy 14, as you get to verse 3, you shall not eat any detestable thing. And now we get into the laws of kosher, or kashrut, as it says in Hebrew. And on my talk radio show in Dallas-Fort Worth, I had Rabbi Elon Adler on a few weeks ago to give us the kosher 101 lesson. So, Rabbi, give it to us here on this podcast for this audience, for those Christians who respect or or see kosher from a distance but don't live it like you do what's the basics here uh the basics are uh first and foremost there are only certain animals uh that can be eaten uh those animals have very specific we call them signs uh biological signs uh they have to chew their cud uh, and have split hooves, uh, the two together. That's what makes a kosher animal. Uh, when it comes to birds, it really relates to a tradition of which birds are kosher or not. Uh, when it comes to fish, it has to be a fish that has fins and scales. But when it comes to the animals, even once you have a kosher animal, there's also a specific way that it has to be prepared uh, with ritual slaughter. So it's not just enough to know the exact animal, but it's also the way it's prepared, and it has to be done that way. So therefore, even if, let's say, in a McDonald's, I know that the hamburger is from a cow, and the cow is a kosher animal, uh, we still can't eat there because it hasn't been prepared in the kosher way with the ritual slaughter, with the salting, and with other things that that have to happen. So uh, it's a strict body of rules. It's something which, you know, I walk through airports sometimes and see people just going into any restaurant or eatery that they want, and I got to have my packaged food or whatever it is. Uh, But it's certainly something which makes God a part of your life wherever you go, and you know that you're you're eating the food which God tells you. I don't want to say physically is healthier for you, but we certainly understand that it's spiritually helpful for us. And even the technology in Israel has developed in such a way that when you are catching fish in the Sea of Galilee or the Jordan River, the kosher fish get caught in the net, but the non-kosher fish do not. I can't even understand how that works. So first of all, as usual, Pastor, you taught me something new. Uh, I didn't know that we have that uh, technology. I didn't know that that was that advanced. Uh, But that is pretty remarkable and not surprising to me uh, that someone in Israel came up with that patent. But it is something which does permeate Israel, the whole idea of kosher. I'm not saying there isn't non-kosher food in Israel, uh, but it is a constant discussion in Israel, trying to find ways to make sure that uh, people who want to keep kosher can do so more easily. Remember, there's also a overseer who has to watch a restaurant or a factory to make sure that things are being done properly. That drives up costs as well. You're always trying to find ways to make it more cost efficient for people so they shouldn't have to be spending too much more uh, for it to be kosher. But Israel, it's incredible just to be able to walk the streets. We have kosher McDonald's uh, in Israel. We have kosher Pizza Hut uh, in Israel. Uh, Those are things which I didn't experience uh, growing up in Maryland. As we continue in Deuteronomy 14, we get to verse 22 and we change subjects from eating prescribed foods to the tithe. Verse 22, you shall surely tithe all the produce from which you sow, which comes out of the field every year. And of course, when you're talking to a mostly agricultural society, the tithe is 
you grow this much grain and you take the top 10% of your grain and you give it to the Lord for his work or for the support of the Levites. Or if you grow all these animals, you give 10% of your animals. Now here in the modern world, most of us don't grow grain or grow animals. We try to grow dollars in our jobs. And so we are to give 10% of our income to the Lord's work. But the tithe is not a burden like the rest of God's laws. It's a privilege. It's a joy. And Rabbi, some of the people in our church, when they talk about their tithe to the church, they say, it's not even my money anyway. That's God's part of the money. So happy you said that. And I want to point out two things to you uh, in the words. The first is the Hebrew words for the verse that you just quoted is aser to aser. Which you translated correctly as you should, you know, you should surely give the tithe, but it's a double language, aser to aser. It repeats the tithing twice, and the commentaries that our sages teach us that it's aser, give the tithe, to aser, which can also be read as to asher, which means to become wealthy, meaning. When you give the tithe, when you give the charity, don't think that in any way, first of all, that you're losing because of it. Not only are you not losing, but you're ultimately going to gain because you'll be blessed for it. And the reason for that, and now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, and as I'm talking, I'm going to try to find it. There's an amazing, amazing verse really towards the end of the, of the portion, but when it talks about the gifts that you give to God. I'm going to skip now for a moment just to the last verse because it's on this point, chapter 16, verse 17, uh, where it says, Ish kimatnat yado. Each person, according to the gift of his hand, he should give to God. But the terminology uh, in the Hebrew of yado is his hand. Sounds like it's referring to somebody else because he's speaking to the people themselves. And you know whose hand it's talking about? the hand of God. Each person should give a gift from his capital H's hand because he's the one who has given you the gift to begin with. So now you lose nothing by giving it back towards charity or towards spirituality. And I'll go ahead and read you my English translation of Deuteronomy 16, 7. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. And that translation uh, is actually really beautiful because I think it, it really emphasizes the point that it's not necessarily the amount that you give uh, in terms of overall quantity, but it's in quality based on what you have. That God gives everybody different amounts, but your ability to give the most that you can within what God gave you, that's what truly matters. And, and, and it's the thought that counts, and it's the intention and the desire to give uh, to God. I think it's a very beautiful idea and a very beautiful translation with a very important message. And in Christian lingo, when you talk about the tithe, you say it this way, not equal giving, equal sacrifice. I couldn't have said it better. Now let's get to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And this is a very interesting topic about the sabbatical year or the cancellation of debts. And so what I want you to do first is explain to us the teaching here of Deuteronomy 15. And then I want to know, is it still happening in modern Israel today? So the sabbatical year uh, is, uh, there's a, a few ideas behind it. One idea is that especially in an agricultural society, People are waking up early in the morning, working in the fields, resting in the middle of the day, going back to the fields, and there isn't a lot of time for spirituality. So one idea is just for ourselves as spiritual human beings to make sure that we take the proper time out 
to be spiritual and to connect to God. That's one element of it. But there's also the element to remember that it's not our talents and skills and powers uh, that bring forth crops from the ground, but that it's ultimately God. It makes no sense how you put seeds in the ground, you water it, you plow it, you do all the work, and these beautiful fruits and crops come out of the ground. And it's to remind us that it's God. How do we remember that? By taking one year off and saying, God, now it's for you to take care of me. And the Bible even said earlier that you get two years crop to take care of yourself during the sixth and the seventh year, and everything will be fine. We do still have the sabbatical year in Israel. We do still keep count of the years. Uh, during that sabbatical year, it's complicated. And the food that grows naturally during that year uh, is actually holy. And you have to treat it with holiness in terms of how you dispose of anything that's left over. And it's a really powerful experience, even though we don't really live in an agricultural society. But just to know that you're involved in a body of laws which have been kept in this way for so many thousands of years, uh, and especially specifically limited and exclusive uh, to the land of Israel, uh, it's very spiritually uplifting. So Deuteronomy 15 talks about the sabbatical year for the land and to let it lie fallow and not be uh, used for growing crops, but it also begins with the release of debt. Verse 1 of chapter 15, at the end of every seven years, you're to grant a remission of debts. This is the manner of remission. Verse 2, every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. So, Rabbi, I wonder if you have a mortgage on your house, and do you get this released every seven years? <laughs> it's a great question, and it's something which, when the state of Israel was founded, and all of a sudden we had a Jewish state where there has to be banks and mortgages and loans, they found a rabbinic solution to the problem. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called the heter iska. Uh, we don't have the time uh, to go into explaining exactly how it works, but they found a way to get around that point. But uh, we do still uh, believe that, in, in theory, uh, loans should go back during this time, and there's something called a prisbal, where the rabbis sort of take ownership of the loan and take it away from the personal individuals uh, that are involved to be able to make sure that people will still pay back their loans. Uh, one of the reasons for that was they didn't want to create a society where people stopped loaning uh, to each other because the loans were going to be forgiven. And they wanted to make sure that people who were poor could get uh, loans in need. But So it's a law that still exists, and we have to do some technical things to be able to make sure that we can function in a modern world of banking and of mortgages and of also people in need getting loans. Also in chapter 15, you get to verse 12, and it talks about if you have a servant who has served you for six years in the seventh year, verse 12, you shall set him free. Verse 13, when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. So there's also an idea of kindness to your fellow man. If they're in economic trouble, you give them some help, you give them some assistance so they can become self-sustaining. This is a basic, basic tenet of, of certainly Judaism, I'm sure Christianity as well. Uh, the goal is to be, always be on the lookout for people who are in need, to share what we have with others. There's no greater act of giving and, and divine activity uh, than doing so. And of course, the ultimate goal is that people shouldn't be uh, uh, relying on others, but should be self-sufficient. That's the ultimate goal uh, that we want to achieve uh, and certainly should be the focus. Uh, you talk about socialism and capitalism. Uh, the idea is to get people to the point where they're independent on their own and able to make their own money. 
as we come to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 15, we get to verse 19, and it says, You shall consecrate to the Lord your God all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and your flock. You shall not work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So is this related to the tenth and final plague in Egypt and the death of the firstborn back in the slavery times? This is something which is talked about uh, by the commentaries. In this particular case, uh, it's not specifically uh, connected to it, although it's certainly something which uh, should play a role in reminding us of it. But the idea is that the very first thing that comes to you, uh, you recognize that the gift that you have of the property that you have, in this case the animals that you have, the livestock, uh, that it comes from God. And, and you have to remember that. And the way to remember that is by giving the very first that comes over to God. And we come to our last chapter for today's podcast, Deuteronomy 16, and we get into the discussion of the Jewish festivals, Shalosh Regalim, if my Hebrew is correct, Rabbi. You said it very well, as usual. The three festivals, the three pilgrimages that you were to make to the temple in Jerusalem, and it begins with Pesach or Passover, and I do have a Hebrew question. Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, my English says, observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. I thought Passover was celebrated in the month of Nisan. Yeah, so the Aviv is actually not the name of a month, but it's spring. It's the Hebrew word for spring, uh, the, the season of the spring. And the word Chodesh over here, which is translated as month, is obviously uh, used very loosely as a, a time period instead of specifically the name of the month. And it really uh, draws focus to the Bible, God's requirement that the Passover be done in the spring. That's not just for historic purposes, because that's when it took place, but spring is a time of renewal. Spring is a time of rejuvenation. And that's what the holiday is supposed to serve as, as for us. So I'd like us to take our last few minutes and talk about these three festivals. We got pa- Passover or Pesach, then you got the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's do them in order. Passover, of course, is the reminder that God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and they were to take the Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the home, and God would pass over, death would pass over that home. And Rabbi, I think you know this, and of course our Christian audience will know this, that we connect that with Jesus on the cross. He's called in the New Testament our Passover lamb, and so we connect those two there. But let's talk sequentially about them. First of all, Passover. Tell us the meaning and the power of Passover for you and your family. Passover is is you know it's hard to say the most meaningful of of the holidays, but uh, certainly it's the time when we as a nation were redeemed from slavery. It's the birth of the nation, and most importantly, it's the time when we have the seder where we sit down as a family and really connect about. Uh, what's important and really give over the traditions. And it's something which is incredibly special. There are laws associated with it as well in terms of not eating leavened bread and eating the special bread called matzah. But most significantly, it's God passed over uh, the homes of the Jews. This is a time when we were designated to be the chosen people. And we have to make sure that we inspire ourselves to act accordingly. So the first 
of the three pilgrimage festivals is described here in Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 8, and that's Passover. And we're going to get into the second one starting in verse 9, but I'll say to remind us, this is not the first time these things have been introduced to the people. This is the reminder of Moses that they are still to be observed once you get into the promised land. And so we get to verse 9 through 12, the Feast of Weeks in Hebrew called Shavuot, or sometimes it's called in Christian circles the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is Greek for 50th, like the Pentagon has five sides. 50th in Greek, because it's supposed to be 50 days after Passover, is Shavuot, and so that's where the Christian name or the Greek term Pentecost comes from. Yeah, and the 50 days is significant because as opposed to other holidays where a specific date is given by the Bible, where God tells us what date it's supposed to be, when it comes to Shavuot, it doesn't because it's the date where we actually, according to our tradition, receive the Torah. The Bible was given at Sinai, and it's one continuous flow from Passover. So it's supposed to be 50 days. That's when we were able to reach the spiritual level to be able to receive the Torah at Sinai, and that's the way the process is supposed to play out, that it's connected as one long process and not two separate holidays, one from the other. And if you were reading the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you would read about the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Peter gave a famous sermon. It's called the birthday of the church, a lot of people say, because the Holy Spirit came upon the church as taught in the book of Acts. And so that's Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, in here Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12. And then we get to the last portion of today's scripture reading. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 17, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, called Sukkot in Hebrew. And that uh, has a few different elements to it. One is certainly commemorating the booths that the people of Israel sat in in the desert where God provided them for protection. Some say it's actually the clouds of glory that protected them. And it's an incredible week where we actually live outside, live under God's protection, and, and, and bask in that glory and celebrate and rejoice because we recognize that even if we have our nice homes and permanent dwelling places, when it's all said and done, it's God who provides us with protection. So as we finish up that discussion about the Feast of Tabernacles, do you and your family create a little booth or a little tent in your backyard? How do you celebrate it? We do. Uh, it's quite remarkable uh, to move outside. We all sit out there together. It's very enjoyable. And, uh, you know, I invite guests over as well. And they're part of what we're doing. And it's just a special time to be in Israel because you really feel the holiday as everyone goes out to these booths and you build it in a special way according to the specific way the rules are uh, required by the uh, tradition. And uh, it's a special time where you really do feel that happiness. So as usual, Rabbi, I'm going to ask you to wrap it up for us. There's been a lot of teaching about blessing following obedience and a lot of reminders that when you enter the land, do what the Lord asks of you. A lot of teaching about avoid pagan idols and and the seduction of pagan worship. So sum it up for us. The way, the way I see this, this, there's a few different elements to this week's portion, but I'm going to go back to that first word. Re'e, see, think reflect, let all these different elements, whether it's the holidays, whether it's the dietary laws of kosher, whether it's the reward and punishment, let it penetrate, let it go inside, and let it make a difference to your life. We have studied Ra'eh, the 
scripture reading for the week in the weekly Torah portion covering Deuteronomy chapters 11 through 16. Rabbi Lipman, my friend, blessings to you and your family and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much, Pastor, to you as well. And we only hear good news and peace from Israel. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.